the memorial service for Rex will be this coming Sunday at 1 o'clock. There will be a uh, fellowship-type uh, dinner after church, between church and uh, the time of the service. So, of course, uh, our prayers are with the family, with uh, Bruce and Lonnie and Bobby and, and uh, Susan and Cynthia, and, and uh, Cynthia Rex's uh, widow now. So continue to pray for them. And also uh, I'll be going up to Arlington this week for the interment of my dad at Arlington National Cemetery, so be in prayer for that. There's still going to be Bible class Thursday night. We have discovered through video that I can be in two places at one time, and so you don't want to miss the class in Jude on Thursday night. Then um, I think the only other announcement, and Jeff is actually here for a, an announcement related to, to Camp Arete. That's right, I do. I slander you every chance I get. Uh, so if anybody has any questions about, and I know there were a couple of people asking me Sunday about uh, donating furniture. They had large items they wanted to donate for the garage sale. Uh, get in touch with Melanie Karn, who's not here during the week, but uh, or, or Jeff, and they'll ha- get that taken care of. Uh, also uh, be in prayer for Camp Arete for this com- coming summer, and then the congregational meeting is going to be on Sunday, February the 17th. There will be one item of uh, congregational approval related to uh, approving a new deacon for the deacon board. I have um, asked um, uh, Greg Freehoff, Sr., if he would like to, uh, if he would please serve on the board, and he's agreed. So that will need to uh, be approved by the congregation. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. This will give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Just uh, all you need to do is confess your sins, which means to admit or acknowledge your sins to God the Father. And at that instant, you're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, ready to study the word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together this evening. We continue to pray for many different requests that are on our our prayer list that seems to continue to expand, but there are several members of the congregation who are facing uh, illnesses, recovery from illnesses, convalescent surgery, and we pray that you would continue to uh, strengthen them, strengthen their families. Uh, in some cases, like with Jay Christopher and his wife Barbara, we just pray for, for their strength, this accident and Everything is left will be quite a shift in their life, and we pray for strength for them and that they might be a real testimony for your grace. Father, we pray for us as we continue to press on in our Christian life that we might continue to understand that everything must be done on the basis of your word and that anything done apart from your word and the Holy Spirit has no eternal value and that your word is absolutely sufficient for each and every problem and situation that we face and that there's no problem too great for your grace. And, Father, now as we continue our study into the mission movement of the first century as the Apostle Paul and John Mark and Barnabas have pushed off into the first journey, John Mark has gone uh, by the wayside, but Barnabas and Paul continue. We pray that we might gain great insight by analyzing Paul's presentation of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to... Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Last time I took us on down to somewhere around verse 34, but I want to go back to the beginning of this. It's important for us to understand how Paul is approaching this whole situation of the gospel. We live in an era today when everybody wants some sort of simplified, canned approach. And there's no good simplified canned approach. There have been some very uh, nice little tracks that have been written over the years 
that God has used. Gene uses one that's based on a little test format. There was a Campus Crusade had a very well-known one called The Four Spiritual Laws. Uh, Dallas Seminary had one called How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. Uh, there have been uh, different ones. Some have been criticized for one thing or another or the lack of one thing or another. But what we see in the scriptures as as uh, different individuals from Jesus with Nicodemus in John 3 to Paul and various different encounters in Acts, all the way through we see how... Uh, how the gospel is presented to different people in different contexts with different backgrounds. Uh, it means we have to really learn the gospel and we have to be in a position to understand what, what people are saying when they're talking. I think this is getting more and more difficult because in the age of Facebook and Twitter, uh, people don't socialize with each other anymore. They socialize via um via their cell phones or their computer or whatever, and they sort of blast everybody with whatever it is rather than sitting down and having a conversation with people. And conversations sometimes take time. Sometimes you may be having a conversation or opening a conversation about the gospel with somebody, and they may seem very hostile. And as you take the time to get to know them and build a relationship, you never know where that's going to end up. Uh, Other people... Uh, you, you begin to talk to them, and it's like they're just waiting for you to come along. You ne- we never know where we are within the process of uh, a person hears the gospel usually several times before they respond. Paul talks about the fact that one person plants, another person waters, and another person is used to bring in the fruit. There's different ways in which uh, we're used in that process, and we never know how we fit into it. So we always have that opportunity uh, to present the gospel, but we have to be prepared. And the place where we go to be prepared is in Bible class, Sunday mornings, Tuesday night, Thursday night. This last Sunday after church, one of the uh, teens in the church came up and asked me if he could come in and talk to me after church this next Sunday because he's been trying to communicate and share the gospel with a uh, another kid that he Jewish kid that he's going to high school with and so he wants to find out some more about about what do they believe and what do you say when they say this and you say that and you have to learn that that's all part of the process of coming to understand but it's it's great to see a high school kid who is interested in finding out how to be more effective at communicating the gospel. It's true. All you have to do is, uh, people have to understand is who Jesus is, but they're coming with a whole load of baggage. And sometimes we have to help them dump the baggage. And the Apostle Paul does that. He doesn't just come out every time and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Acts would be a very short book if he only had uh, one uh, evangelistic weapon in his arsenal. He takes a different approach almost every time, and he takes into account the background, the prior information, the understanding of his audience. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, gospel presentation. So what we've seen here uh, by way of focus, is that as we get into this, I want you to read through his presentation, and we want to think through what he does, how he presents things, how he sets things up, where he starts, what his emphasis is, and one thing in particular we need to look at is how does he express the gospel. In verse 32, he says, and we declare to you glad tidings. Now, the English uses one, two, three, four, five, six words to express one verb in the Greek, evangelizo, which means to proclaim or to, sometimes it's translated to preach. It merely means to give good news, to declare good news, to proclaim good news, and that's that's the idea. So that's what he is saying to this Jewish audience. We proclaim to you glad tidings or good news, that's the gospel, that that promise which was made to the Father. So he anchors the gospel deeply into the Old Testament. 
but he recognizes, and his whole presentation here is a, is built on the fact that his Jewish audience understands the Old Testament. But unless you're dealing with a a, 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 a more mature, uh, conservative, conservadox, orthodox Jew today, they don't know the Old Testament. I have um, one particular uh, friend, uh, acquaintance, she and her husband have become uh, good friends over the last uh, four or five years, got to know them through APAC. It's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting scenario because uh, I have made it a point not to be very aggressive in uh, the go- presenting the gospel. Some people would think that, well, you've got to grab every opportunity, but no, you just you, you have to give people, let them feel comfortable, and a lot of Jews go around thinking they have a uh, target on their back. But from almost the beginning, she would ask me questions. In fact, in our first conversation, she asked me if I would explain the difference between a Jew for Jesus and a Messianic Jew. Now, how many of you realize that's a loaded question? That is an extremely loaded question because Jews for Jesus is an evangelistic organization that was founded by, uh, uh, I forget his name now, he died about a year ago, and there was rejoicing throughout the Jewish community. The Jewish community just hated and despised him and the tactics that he adopted for Jews for Jesus. So the mention of Jews for Jesus is a real loaded term. I mean, that's like throwing a a hand grenade out there on the table and asking you to pull the pin. You just don't want to do that. So you have to be somewhat knowledgeable, and you unfortunately we all learn these kinds of things through trial and error. Sometimes we pull the pin, and and that's how we learn not to pull the pin the next time. So that was uh, one of the early questions, and she has a cousin, though, that turns out is a Messianic Jew. He doesn't go to a Messianic congregation. He goes to, I think, something, some kind of charismatic, evangelical, uh, generic evangelical church up in the Dallas area, and he's always sending her emails where he deals with very, he'll say, talk about, because he's conservative, she's very conservative politically, Obama's the Antichrist, or this is going to lead to Armageddon, or the Iranians are going to attack, and this is Gog and Magog. She just forwards him to me, and she says, would you please explain this to me? And I take the approach of, of trying to be more of the academic dispassion type. This is what Christians believe. This is what Jews believe, trying to develop that stark contrast between the two so that with, without pulling back from presenting the gospel, but not presenting it in a way that is direct but indirect. So this last uh, Thursday, uh, this last Thanksgiving, she was at a family reunion in Florida, and uh, her Messianic Jewish cousin was there, and he they were talking about uh, John Hagee, who's the pastor of, Cor- I think it's Cornerstone uh, Church in San Antonio, who started the uh, organization, now has over a million members, called Christians United for Israel, C-U-F-I or CUFI for short, and I think it's a good organization. I think it's a good organization for a lot of Christians, because there are a lot of Christians who don't need to be out in public too much. And they really don't know how to behave themselves in an, in a group that's not religiously focused. And if you put a lot of Christians into a group like APAC, uh, they're going to run around, start witnessing to everyone around, and they're just going to cause an explosion like, like uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki uh, because they don't understand the context. And they, they just think that every time they see an unbeliever, the first thing they have to do is get out their gospel gun and unload on them. And that's not the best way to do that. I've tried to communicate that to everybody who goes to Israel with me, but there's usually somebody on a trip who doesn't quite get the point. I usually don't find out till the trip's over. But anyhow, so uh, <clears throat> she's sitting down with this with her, with her brother, and he's talking about Hagee, and he says, "Well, I don't like Hagee because Hagee teaches." that all Jews, Jews get saved on the basis of a different covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant guarantees our salvation, and that's not true. So she immediately emails me and said, is, is this true? Well, I said, well, first of all, he, he wasn't real clear, your cousin wasn't real clear on the way he handled covenants, so let me explain what the covenants are. And I went through all the Jewish covenants, and, 
and, and the key verses. And then at the end of the email, I listed all the verses so she wouldn't have to go find them somewhere, but she would have them all there to look at them. And I left a verse out, but this is a sharp gal. I mean, she's really sharp. She read everything in that whole email, but at the end she said, you know, when you quoted from the Jeremiah passage to show that there was the, the new covenant replaced, uh, you said it showed that the new covenant replaced the old covenant, but that verse didn't say that. And I went back and I looked at it and went, oh, I left out verse 33. But see how carefully she read everything in the email. It was probably a three-page, three or four-page email. And um, but, but anyway, so she was asking that question. I said, well, Hagee is, that's what it's purported that Hagee teaches, but I've heard him publicly uh, denounce that view. I don't know really what his view is. I know some people who know him personally who say he does not believe that, and personally uh, he is, uh, when he has uh, various uh, friends, friends stay in his house, and I know a number of leading uh, Jewish, leading members and leaders of Jewish groups who stay with him for extended stays, a week or two or more, that privately he will get into conversations where they discuss the gospel. And uh, and I, so I pointed all of that out, and then she said, after she read all that, she said, so if the Abrahamic covenant does, and none of these covenants address the personal destiny of every Jew when they die, how do Jews know they're going to go to heaven? See, you just, if you're patient, the fish come to the bait. You just have to learn to be patient. Jesus used that analogy, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And I, there's a lot to that metaphor, a lot more to that metaphor than, than people, people give it credit for. So I went through, I, I just finished, this was last summer. No, it was this Thanksgiving. Last summer, remember, I went through as part of our Acts study, I went all the way through Isaiah 53, so I gave her a summary of Isaiah 53 and hit about five other uh, focused uh, passages, prophecies from the Old Testament. And she got so excited about that, I have no idea and may never know if she responded positively or negative to it, but she printed it out and gave it to about uh, six or seven other people one of whom is a lady that she met about three years ago and started running together, running with in Memorial Park. This is how God works. So she calls me up about a year ago, and she said, it's really funny today. I was This was back when we were planning that night to honor Israel last year. She says, I was out running in, with uh, my friend Denise in Memorial Park, and uh, I was telling her that we were going to have this night to honor Israel. And and I, I mentioned that I had a friend that was a an evangelical pastor, and Denise was really surprised. She said, "Well, you, you know an evangelical pastor? Well, who is it?" And uh, she said, "It's uh, Robbie Dean." And Denise stopped. She said, "Robbie Dean married my husband and me at Baraka Church ten years ago." <laughs> so it's it's amazing how people sort of surround several of my Jewish friends are just surrounded by people who have come out of a strong doctrinal church background who are faithful consistent witnesses around them but it takes time to learn how to do this I'm just fortunate that I've had to teach it you don't learn anything like you do once you teach it that I've had the opportunity to learn these things but we have to learn them we're all responsible for being effective witnesses, and that means we have to control the data. And I pointed out last time how Paul starts off with Abraham, and then he jumps over to David in the Davidic covenant, then he jumps forward another thousand years to John the Baptist, and then he slows down and goes from John the Baptist to the crucifixion and the uh, resurrection. And that's what we're going to go back over a little bit tonight, but he is in this community up here, in uh, south-central Turkey, what is now south-central Turkey, in Pisidia. This was uh, uh, Antioch, one of about 25 or 26 Antiochs that were uh, founded by uh, one of the first Seleucids in honor of his father. And this one was located right on the border between Pamphylia and uh, Pisidia. And so it was always, even though it's in Pamphylia, it's always referred to as Antioch in Pisidia. And it had a large large Jewish community. And so this is where uh, Paul spends a good bit of his time. And on this journey, this is the focal point 
this message is the focal point that the Holy Spirit wants us to to examine. If you look at this list of places he goes to in the first missionary journey, you'll notice there's another large section of about 14 verses in Acts 14. There stay in Lystra. Now, that's another, that, we're going to spend some time there, too, analyzing his presentation there because he's talking to pagans, pagan Gentiles, I have no understanding, no preconception uh, related to the Old Testament. And, and so Paul's going to focus on them in a completely different way than he does with this Jewish audience in the synagogue at Pisidia in Antioch. Thought I would show you, I've got a couple of different pictures. This is uh, the ruins of Pisidian Antioch. It's it's up in the uh, higher elevation of about 3,500 to 4,000 feet, uh, not far from the um, uh, mountains to the north. with snow covered in this picture. We can see uh, the ruins there. And then uh, I've got a couple of other pictures. I didn't, maybe I don't have these all in order. Let me see. Here we go. Here's another one where we see, again, the mountains in the background. We see the size of, these are the ruins there in Antioch. And then this is one of the aqueducts uh, that has survived uh, from, from that uh, period of time. Okay, let me go back a little bit here. Now, the background for this is the Ab- understanding the Abrahamic covenant. When Paul starts off, he starts off where they have a frame, a common frame of reference, and that is the Torah. The Jews at that time, you only, you only had Orthodox Jews in a broad sense of the term. Orthodox at that time wasn't like Orthodox today, but Orthodox until the mid-1700s. Then you had the development of what became known as Reformed Judaism. Reformed Judaism had been... Uh, influenced by the Enlightenment, and so they basically threw out all uh, biblical authority. But it, it, from the first century to the middle of the 18th century, Jews had an, had a an, an, uh, recognition of the authority of the Old Testament a, as the Word of God. So in the first century, they certainly did, and we're told that after the reading of the Torah and the Haftarah, that's the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue then gave an opening to Paul to give a message or a challenge to the congregation. So he stood up and addressed them, both the Israelites that were there and uh, those who feared God, that is Gentiles, who were there uh, investigating Judaism. And he starts immediately with the Abrahamic covenant, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. So we're talking about the election of Abraham. He's not elect for salvation. He's elect to a specific purpose that God is going to bless the human race through Abraham, that the Jewish people would be the custodians of God's revelation, and it would be through the Jewish people that God would give a Savior who would pay, who would be the Savior of the world and provide forgiveness for sins. The Abrahamic covenant is covered in a number of passages. The core passages are in Genesis 12, where Abraham and his seed, that is all of his descendants, all of the Jewish people, were promised a specific piece of real estate uh, that there would be through his seed all nations would be blessed and they would be a worldwide blessing. Those three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant were further expanded in what's become known as the a land covenant in Deuteronomy 30 where God promised specific real estate between uh, Sinai and the Euphrates and the Mediterranean and all of that land that now is comprised of Israel, the so-called Palestinian territories, uh, really Judea and Samaria, all the way up into portions of Syria, Jordan, uh, some portions of uh, Lebanon are all part of that land God promised to Israel. Then we have the Davidic covenant, which promised that there would be an eternal descendant sitting on an eternal throne uh, of David's, and that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then the new covenant 
was to replace the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which was seen as temporary. And this is a covenant that would not only provide external blessing, but internal blessing for the Jewish people, uh, giving them a new heart. Now, the Davidic covenant becomes a focal point in the next section. So in verse 17, he talks about the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, exalted the people. That's it for Genesis. Then we skip over to uh, Egypt when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. This is in the book of Exodus. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. That's the first 15 chapters of Exodus. Uh, 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. That's uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy up to the point where the uh, conquest generation was going to enter the land. And then in verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations. Now, when he talks about the seven nations here, uh, he's talking about, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 7.1, or going back to that, where uh, Moses stated, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and I want you, just as a side note here, we're going to see a, sim, a word based off of this. Possession is based on the word for inheritance. Inheritance doesn't mean somebody dies and you get something. It has its core meaning of a possession, and those possessions may be transferred at death, but when you own something, that is your inheritance that you can pass on to subsequent generations. We'll see a form of that word here as we go forward in our study in Acts 13. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 1 says, You cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. This comprised the Canaanites. The Canaanites were not a precursor to the Palestinians. They're not an ethnic heritage to the Palestinians. That's one argument you sometimes hear from the modern so-called Palestinians. But the modern so-called Palestinians are basically an ethnic mongrel uh, race or group that are primarily Arab, but they have many other strains because in in the 19th century, there were basically the Ottoman Empire had left the area known as Palestine, which was a term that uh, the Greeks and later Romans imposed on the area. And until Arafat in 19, uh, about 1964-65 co-opted the term, it always referred to Jews. But Arafat co-opted the term and started applying it to the Arab population in uh, Israel, not the Jewish population uh, in Israel. So during all of that, during the 19th century, uh, the area known as Israel or Palestine at that time was basically uh, emptied of, of many people. It, it became pretty much a, a barren wasteland. There were a lot of people that lived there. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that everybody had left, but it, it, the, 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 the ground was parched. The, there wasn't a lot of agriculture going on. There were a lot of Bedouins who drifted through the area, but there was little of long-term profitability. There were some Jewish families who could trace their ancestry all the way back to the Second Temple period and continue to live in the land uh, during that time. But as the Jews began to immigrate into uh, that area in the mid-19th century and they began to carve out for themselves farms and begin to irrigate and begin to uh, develop the land, uh, all of a sudden there was a need for workers in the area and the Ottomans rounded up uh, various ethnic groups from other parts of the Ottoman Empire uh, from up in the Balkans. You had Serbs and Croats and uh, uh, ver- uh, various other people from that area. You had Egyptians, you had Arabs. You had a whole range of different ethnicities that were brought in as migrant labor. See, now the Jews basically have a problem with the descendants of the migrant labor force they brought in in the 19th century. It's an immigration issue, not any different from today. We bring migrant workers in, and all of a sudden you have a problem when they start multiplying uh, like rabbits because they tend to uh, want to call the land their own when they have no historical claim to it. 
And that's what happened with the so-called Palestinian people. They didn't arrive until the late 19th century, and then, uh, but they weren't Jewish. And now they want to claim that they have a historical connection to the Canaanites or the Philistines, and they don't. Just because Palestine sounds like Philistine doesn't mean there's a semantic correlation. Now, that's the popular view, but there's an alternative view, which I think is correct, is that the the Greeks who loved word plays and loved puns chose the word Palestine because it's built on the Greek verb uh, palaio, which means wrestler. And if you remember the story from Genesis uh, 31, 32 in uh, the Old Testament, uh, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, was a wrestler, and he wrestled with the angel of God. So the... Uh, the, the Greeks called the area the land of the wrestler, which was the nickname or another name for uh, for Israel. And it was Palestine, but it sounded like Philistine, so they got to have a big chuckle over that because of the wordplay. Now, there's a few scholars, a minority, that take that view, but it doesn't come out from evangelicals or Jews. It comes from, from others. Um, so that's the background and origin uh, there, so Moses just touches on this uh, very lightly in terms of what is um, uh, what he, uh, in terms of his main point. Then he goes on in verse twenty. He says, after that, he gave them judges for about four hundred and fifty years. The phrase for about four hundred and fifty years should probably go uh, before the phrase after that he gave them judges, so that the the phrase for about 450 years covers the time period from Abraham through the conquest. It makes a lot more sense and actually fits the time frame there rather than trying to make it fit the period of the judges and the early monarchy, as I pointed out last time. So he covers that period, the period of the judges. He glosses over and until Samuel the prophet. Now he's zeroing in. He's got David in his crosshairs. Says afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. So he's jumping forward to the Davidic covenant. Now, I don't want to take the time to go back to Second Samuel chapter seven and go through the Davidic covenant. But we'll just mention it here. The Davidic covenant, the key passages are Second Samuel seven, twelve through sixteen, Psalm eighty nine, which is a meditation and expansion on Second Samuel seven, and First Chronicles seventeen, eleven to fourteen, which is the parallel passage to Second Samuel. God promises David that his house, his lineage, would produce an eternal house an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So this is the essence. Now, only someone who's eternal can fulfill that promise. And so even though this is depicted as going through the lineage of uh, Solomon, it focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this reference in verse um, 21 or 22, talking about David as the son of Jesse, a man after his own heart, is a reference to 1 Samuel 13, 14, where Saul is going to be, is condemned because of his disobedience, that his king, and told that his kingdom would not continue, that the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Now, what's the difference between Saul and David? Now, you will hear some people say that, well, Saul really wasn't a believer. But there are too many things that happen in relation to Saul. He's given a new heart back in about uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, later on, when the rich, witch of Endor is surprised because uh, for the one time in her career as a necromancer, she calls up uh, uh, someone from the grave, and they actually showed up. That's because God allowed Samuel to come back to announce a judgment on Saul. Saul had was about to go into battle with the Philistines. He was scared to death. He uh, Solomon had died a number of years earlier. He wanted some guidance from from uh, excuse me from Samuel, 
And so he went to the witch of Endor, shows how blind and backward carnality can make us. He went to, she, he went to the witch of Endor, which he, she was just a, a necromancer, someone who would uh, conduct seances and get in touch with the dead. And so she calls up Samuel, and Samuel showed up. She was scared to death. It was such a shock to her, she immediately realized that the, the person in disguise in front of her was Saul, and so she realized that she could, earlier in his, uh, in his reign, Saul had made uh, necromancy a death penalty offense, so she was scared to death of what might happen to her. But what happens in that interchange is Solomon says to Saul, you and your sons will be with me today. And where was Saul? I mean, where was Samuel? Samuel was in paradise. And so this, again, is another confirmation that Saul was a believer. But he didn't have a heart for God. A heart for God doesn't mean you're you're always perfectly obedient to God, but it's somebody who has made a decision, a commitment in their own life and in their own thinking that they're going to put the Word of God first and foremost in their life and their relationship with God. That doesn't mean they're not going to blow it. Look how many times David blew it. David committed not only the more well-known uh, sins of adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to have her husband killed. But later on, he, when he was full of arrogance, he decided to, to go against God's uh, will, and he had the people numbered in a census, uh, a way of counting everything he had to make sure to show off how great he was. And as a result of that, a huge number of Jews were slaughtered in divine judgment because of his arrogance. So David had a number of, of horrible sins, as we all do. But David was still a man after God's own heart. Even when he was disobedient, he loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what this is talking about. The Lord wanted somebody who was fully committed to him as the king of, uh, of his people. And so uh, David, uh, or excuse me, uh, Saul or Paul refers to this that uh, he, that God chose David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, verse 23 says, From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Notice how he jumps from the time of David, 1000 B.C., all the way up to the time of Christ, and he identifies uh, G- Jesus Yeshua, which mean, which is the name Jesus, Jesus in the Greek, Yeshua in the Hebrew is from the same Hebrew root word as Joshua. Yasha is the Hebrew verb meaning to save or deliver. Uh, so Jesus is, is named that because he was going to, what did Gabriel say to Mary? He's going to save or deliver his people from their sins. Now that's critical because that helps us to understand the focal point of the gospel. It is to save people from their sins. Now, let's read on. Uh, Paul goes on to talk about John the Baptist when he preached. He preached the baptism of repentance, and we've studied this many, many times, how this idea of repentance isn't uh, feeling sorry for your sins. It's not uh, having some sort of emotional mindset. Repentance means to change your orientation, to turn from disobedience to obedience. And in this case, it is turning to accept, changing your mind about Jesus as the Messiah. And so verse 24, after Joshua had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel It's not that baptism saved, but baptism was an external uh, sign that you had changed your mind about the, the message of John. Verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think that I am? Asking the people. I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not, of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, now Paul addresses that, that, that address there of men and brethren. In the synagogue of that day, the men sat on this side, there was a wall, and the women sat on the other side. And usually the bema, which was the what we would call the pulpit, 
was on the the man's side, and the women listened, or sometimes if there was a balcony, they sat up above as well, but they were screened so that everything was addressed to the men. Now, why would that be? See, most of us have been brainwashed by our feminist culture into thinking, well, that minimized the women. It didn't minimize the women, it maximized the family. That's what the purpose was, recognizing that the man was the head of the home. It was the man who was responsible for the spiritual health of the family. Now, it got perverted and distorted, which is a result of the Genesis uh, 3 uh, sin issue, that the, there would be this uh, conflict, this authority conflict between uh, men and women, but that was its focus. It wasn't. We, we look at, at at societies, at churches, at at the whole culture as a collection of individuals. Whereas biblically, it, they looked at families. They looked at collections of families. That was part of the mindset that was uh, uh, influenced things in the in the colonial period in America. This is why when they first uh, had the Constitution and voting was for men and not for uh, people who didn't own property. It was only for male property owners. It wasn't for those who didn't have property because if you don't own property, you don't have a vested interest in the financial condition of the state. Now we see what happens. Most people in this country don't have a vested interest in the financial condition of this nation, and so they elect leaders who will give them uh, whatever they want. And as I think it was Thomas Jefferson, it was either Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin said that, that once the people wake up and realize they can vote people into power who will, give, who will give them the money out of the treasury, then the republic is over. And that's where we are today. We are electing leaders who want to dole out money uh, to everybody, and we want somebody to give us things, and we have created the, one of the worst entitlement mentalities in all of history. We can't last very long with this kind of mentality dominating uh, dominating the country. Not because not only because in and of itself that's wrong, but because that kind of dependent mentality destroys the destroys the character of the individual. Uh, we, we are made to be responsible, and God created human beings to go out and to conquer and to subdue and control the earth, not to sit back irresponsibly as couch potatoes and and just feed off of the hard work of others. And as people do that, the more dependent they become, it destroys their character, it destroys their virtue, it destroys their integrity, it destroys their sense of responsibility, it destroys their femininity, and it destroys their masculinity. And so once once that happens in a culture, it, it is, I think it's almost past a point of no return. And so uh, in the early stages, our founding fathers understood many of these principles. They were extremely wise and they set it up so that that they really viewed families as the core unit in the society, and that's why men voted. Men were the head of the family. They viewed the normative pattern as families, not as individuals and singles. But of course, our whole society has changed, and we are uh, the, the over fifty percent of Americans are unmarried are single, widowed, something of that nature, and so we don't have that family cohesion anymore, and that's part of the reason that we see the internal weakness that we have. So in the in the congregation of the synagogue, the men were on one side, and that's who was addressed. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Paul is now shifting gears. He's given his introduction, and now he says, this message is for you. God has specifically sent this message for you, and he is going to set them up for the main presentation of the gospel. Verse 27, he says, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, they, like most Jews, they, they read the Torah, 
They read the Haftorah, they read the prophets, and they didn't understand, and they had basically already rejected God in their in their thinking, at the foundation of their thinking. They were going through the motions, and so when God shows up in fulfillment of all these prophecies, they rejected it. It happened in Jerusalem, it happened with the leaders, but there were still tens of thousands of Jews in Israel that responded to the Messiah, but not a majority and not the leadership. And verse 28, Paul says, though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And of course, Pilate found no cause uh, for death in him, but they did it anyway. They violated their own laws according to the Mishnah. Verse 29, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him. Here's the point. What are the things that were written concerning the Messiah? Have you got a list somewhere in your Bible? I've gone over this many times. I covered a number of uh, prophetic passages. I think it was Christmas two years ago. Went through a series on the Messiah. Went through Messianic prophecies one after another in the Old Testament to train, equip us so that we would be able to uh, articulate these promises if we were in a position where we uh, needed to show how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies from the Old Testament. So Paul goes to this, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, and that's an important thing to do as you're witnessing to certain kinds of people. Now, who are the kinds of people that you need to do that with? Well, those who already believe that Jesus that believe that there's truth in the Old Testament. Earlier I was talking about this uh, friend of ours who is uh, this this woman who seems interested in understanding Christianity and Judaism. She, in, in those emails I talked about, she even said, uh, really, you know, I don't know much about either Judaism or Christianity. And that's true for a lot of Jews. But what is interesting with her, and I have had conversations about biblical truth with a number of different Jewish friends, but the ones that tend that are closer to being orthodox never ask the question, how can you believe this? But the ones that are closer to orthodox already believe the Bible. That gives you a common ground, a frame of reference. It, otherwise, they're not any different from a pagan Gentile. They're just into their Judaism because that's their ethnic background. That's their, it's the cultural social thing. It has nothing to do with believing the Old Testament or knowing it. Trust me, they don't know it. You know more about the Old Testament than they will in ten lifetimes. They just don't know it. Evangelicals look at Jews with these rose-colored glasses that cause them to completely misunderstand and misidentify uh, the the uh, thinking of their Jewish friends. You look at your Jewish friends and you see the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are the heirs of the promise of God. They don't, they're looking at God saying, God, go choose somebody else. Don't choose us. We don't want you. We don't believe in you. And they're as secular and as pagan and as, in many cases, as socialist, Marxist, Leninist as they can possibly be. Look at the White House. I, I would guess that almost half the staffers in the, uh, uh, in the current White House are Jewish, liberal, East Coast Jewish background. And remember, about 80% of the uh, Jews in America, I'm not talking about a Jewish conspiracy, what happened when you had the pogroms that occurred in Russia in the late 19th century that pushed, the, at that time, Three-fourths of the Jewish population in the world lived in Poland, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, the area known as the Pale of Settlement. And they had already imbibed Marxism. And this was one of the reasons why the Tsars were hostile, because it wasn't just against the Jews, but this whole movement that was spreading throughout the younger people in uh, Eastern Europe and in Western Russia that threatened the uh, old establishment. And so part, many of them were Jews, Marx, um, uh, Mar not, not just Marx, but many of the um, uh, founders of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution were, were Jewish. I mean, they're atheists. They don't believe anything about the Old Testament. They, they reject anything like that. They are just, they're, they're, they've just imbibed Marxism. And so when all, all of those people came to the U.S., what did they do? They got into the labor movement. They got into unions. 
because they had a socialist mindset. It's not their Jewishness that's a problem. It's the Marxist, Marxism and, and socialism uh, that they had imbibed that's the problem. And so that becomes the background. And there is a, um, um, a great book by Norman Podoritz called uh, Why Are Jews Liberal? And that's his basic thesis, and I think that explains a major part of why you have 70% of the Jewish people in this country vote against the worst president uh, that we've had in, in 50 years uh, in terms of the relationship with Israel. And if you don't believe that, he's now appointed a new uh, head of the CIA who, when he gave a speech recently in Egypt, uh, continuously referred to Jerusalem as Al-Quds. That's the uh, Muslim name uh, for Jerusalem. And he's appointed, um, or he's got up for an, uh, an appointment, uh, a new Secretary of Defense who's made a number of hostile comments about Jews and about Israel in his past. And uh, all of this bears no good for the future. Uh, Chuck Hagel has uh, made many, he's on the record, making many nasty remarks about the uh, pro-Israel lobby and uh, APAC and a number of other organizations that are supportive of Israel because he is not. So just because he has some sort of conservative credentials in his background, don't be snow. These, these people who are being uh, pushed out there right now to, to, uh, to be the new leaders in the second Obama administration are as ambivalent about Israel, if not hostile to Israel, as our president is. And yet you, you ask and I ask, why do so many Jews vote uh, Democrat? And that is because they have this tradition of socialism and liberalism and progressivism that they brought with them from Eastern Europe. And they have had nothing to replace that worldview. And so they will continue down that path. In fact, it has been said by uh, Zeb Kofitz, who not only wrote uh, the authorized biography of Rush Limbaugh called uh, Rush, an Army of One, but uh, about 10 years ago he wrote an excellent little book that's out of print now called uh, Match Made in Heaven, Why Evangelicals, and Jews need each other. And it's a fabulous book. He's an extremely humorous writer. But he said that that 40% of the Jews in America will vote Democrat and liberal to preserve the right of abortion, even if they know, even if they know that the person they're going to elect will lead to the destruction of the state of Israel. So you have to think about that. That's, that's the Jewish community in, in America. It's not religious. So if you're witnessing to a non-religious Jew, talking to a non-religious Jew, that's, that's like talking to a non-religious anybody. But there are others who are not, and they're orthodox. They believe the Bible. They're fairly conservative. And so you have that as a frame of reference. If you don't have that as a frame of reference, then you need to approach things a different way. And we'll see that when we get into the uh, discourse uh, or Paul's presentation in Iconium. Now he gets to the core of the gospel, or the core of the saving work of Christ in verse 29 and 30. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now, he's not going to simply make that claim. He's going to show that there were numerous witnesses uh, to that. He says he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Notice that's a key word that we see all through, uh, all through Acts. Now, Paul could be asked, well, who are these witnesses? And Paul could run through a list because we know that there were probably, or maybe between 500 and 1,000 witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection, many of whom might have been known by Jews in this synagogue. So he's saying this at a time that is only within about 16 or 17 years removed from the resurrection, and people who, who those people in the Jewish community in, in, in uh, Antioch, Pisidian uh, Antioch, would have known people back in Jerusalem to get confirmation on that. Verse 31, he was, uh, verse 32, 
And we declare, this is the verse I started with, we declare to you glad tidings, evangelizo. Uh, we give good news. We proclaim to you good news, the promise which was made to the fathers. We studied this before. Uh, this is a key thought that runs through Paul's preaching. It's a key thought in Romans. It's a key thought in, in Galatians especially. The promise of salvation, the promise of deliverance from sin. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, it's almost 8.30, and we get into a whole series of verses here that I don't want to uh, cut in two. I want us to take the time. We've got a quote from Psalm 2 here. We've got a quote in verse 34 from Isaiah 55.3. We've got a quote in verse 35 from Psalm 16.10. Uh, see how Paul has such a great knowledge of the Old Testament that he's able to weave these verses in in order to support his claim that Jesus has fulfilled uh, these promises, the claim that he made back in verse verse 29. And as he moves through this, he's going to get to the, the point where he talks about uh, talks about the gospel. Verse 38. I want to. I'll come back to this next week, but I don't want to. Uh, lose it this, this evening. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins. Now, I saw Katie out here in the back reading an, uh, uh, one of the uh, publications from the Grace Evangelical Society and, uh, and another article written by Zane Hodges. And recently this has reared its ugly little head again after this perversion of the gospel split Chafer Seminary about five or six years ago, uh, claiming that the gospel is simply the message, believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. No mention of the cross is necessary. No mention of forgiveness of sins. The focal point is simply the offer of eternal life. But Paul doesn't even mention eternal life here. He preaches the forgiveness of sins in verse 38. And then in verse 39, he says, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, by that, he's not saying you could be justified by anything in the law of Moses. He said, you think you can be justified by some things in the law of Moses, but actually nothing. Jesus is the only source of justification. So what's the gospel according to Paul? The gospel according to Paul is forgiveness of sins and justification. We get eternal life, but the gospel message isn't uh, you need to believe in Jesus for eternal life. The gospel message focuses on believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he paid the penalty for your sins. You can have forgiveness of sins and uh Jesus Christ died so that you could be justified, declared righteous. The problem is sin. The problem isn't a lack of eternal life. Now, can somebody be saved if they're given a gospel that just focuses on eternal life? Yes, because all of these different things focus on different uh, facets of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He reconciled, he justified, he redeemed, he gives eternal life. All of those are different facets, and it doesn't matter whether you're presenting the gospel as justification or reconciliation or forgiveness of sins or eternal life. They all reflect the same core message, that you've got a major problem that you can't solve. Jesus solved it on the cross, and the only way to get make that apply to you is by trusting in Christ on what he did on the cross. So it's not one or the other. And this is a problem that has really plagued the free grace community and has caused a huge split. And I think that ever since they went down that, that road uh, officially, around 2004, 2005, they created a major, uh, major problem that y'all need to be uh, very much aware of, and so this is the God, this is what Paul presents. All everything in the Old Testament, all these passages lead up to understanding 
Christ died to forgive sins. And that means to cancel sin so it's no longer the issue. And we'll look at this. We'll go back, tie these passages together, work a little more on understanding these uh, Old Testament prophecies and how that relates to the gospel of forgiveness and justification uh, when we come back next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded of, of how your plan of salvation didn't just come on the scene uh, 2,000 years ago, but that it had been planned from eternity past, had been prophesied and proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, and came to fruition in fulfillment of your uh, your teaching, of your uh, prophecies specifically, so that we could have confidence that this is the truth. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us to be more prepared to give the gospel, more uh, properly uh, trained to uh, confront unbelievers with their lack of faith and to understand how to present the gospel in each situation that we're in. And we pray for those that we are witnessing to that they might uh, be more responsive and that we might be more effective in our presentation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.